Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Alina Martin. And I'm Lucinda Rouse. We're reporters at Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. And this week, we will be talking about things that charities need to consider when it comes to inclusion and representation of their service users in their advertising campaigns. So without any further ado, let's get into it. We have two guests with us in the studio today. First up is Rick Dodds, creative partner at Don't Panic London, a creative agency which works with corporate and voluntary sector clients to identify and communicate their social purpose. Hello, Rick. Hi, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. Thank you for inviting us here. Also with us is Natalia Nana Lester Bush, an organisational equity, diversity and inclusion consultant. Natalia Nana has advised UK and international charities and faith groups on DEI issues and is a professional facilitator of uncomfortable conversations. Hello, Natalia Nana. Hi, thank you for having me here. So, speaking of uncomfortable conversations, can you tell us why the sector needs to work on how to better involve and represent the communities that they campaign for? What have organizations been doing wrong this entire time? Mm, thank you. And thank you for raising the question as why they need to rather than why we should. I think that mm. is one of the underpinning points of it. Of Actually, mm. this is something that is really integral to the future of the INGO and UK NGO sector. And for me in particular, like, it really is a question of values and truth. So there's something just so dissonant, like disconnected in how we represent in particular international groups with whom we work. And actually thinking about for me, it's a question about, okay, actually zoom out and what is it that the charity sector wants to achieve? And I think we're really at this time of having to question, are we going to continue to replicate this inherited and really broken and unfit for purpose and really unequal and disrespectful Victorian philanthropy model? Or are we actually going to look at a longer term, broader picture of actually, okay, what is this sector about? And for me, this sector is not about, God forbid, development. This is about redevelopment. This is about rebuilding and re-equalizing communities which were decimated by disasters, both natural and human in the form of colonization. So for me, there's something about actually saying, well, we need to zoom out and look at what are your charity aims? Is your aim simply to get some money to build this well? Or is your aim more broadly to actually equalize how the world view the Southern Hemisphere, how we view those who have suffered and been been hindered by colonialism and how we represent people that we have the honor and privilege of representing in our fundraising is one of the basic immediate tools with which we can do that. So for me, it's very much a call of actually respect and values and treating the black and brown bodies and their stories with the same respect that we do white northern hemisphere stories and bodies. And how about in the UK context, less the decolonizing aid argument, but more how you treat other marginalized groups Mm -hmm. in this country? Mm, I think the same perspective fits in that actually it's about partly moving away from the individualistic, very Victorian notion, very capitalist notion of aid, charity, philanthropy that we have and moving to a systemic societal model. Mm. So for instance, I am disabled in multiple ways. I am myopic, I'm wearing glasses, I am hard of hearing, I'm wearing hearing aids, I have fibromyalgia, which is a chronic pain and fatigue condition. I've got lung scarring, which is a respiratory condition. But of those, my myopia doesn't disable me. 
it very much would do in another country, in another context, in another time, but it doesn't because society has enabled me. Hashtag thank you, Specsavers. Like, <laughs> you can edit that out if you, if you want. <laughs> no promotion was paid for in this broadcast. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? It's like trying to hit that fact of actually when we talk about whether we're fundraising for disability or fundraising for age-related conditions or mental health issues, there's something about looking at what society is, what has formed these issues, how we form society, not the individual person, and the focus on help Ellie, she is homeless, give her a place to sleep tonight, is so lacking in any context of what is it Mm. in Ellie's education, in her family structure that is impacted by society, in the mental health and health support that she has or has not received that has led to Ellie being on the streets of London. And that just being so lacking is so flat and bland and basic. And I think really not only undignified, but also just irresponsible. So for me, it would be very much the same argument of zooming out and broadening and looking at the context and the cause and telling that story, which is actually far more interesting than repeating this tired, dry oh, there's a poor lamb, oh, black child, oh, homeless child, oh, homeless woman, oh, abused woman. This sort of tired, repetitive, single victim mentality Mm. and I get to whoop in and be the white slash northern hemisphere slash capitalist money-owning saviour and help them sleep for tonight. Like, God, can we please update the script already? And I think it's going to be way more, So, like you just said, more interesting. It's more interesting in every single way, isn't it? It's more interesting... For us, for our process, it's more interesting from a creative process. It's more interesting for a viewer mm-hmm. as well. And like you said, like, update the script. How can, you know, when creatives are briefed, to write a script of somewhere they've never even been? Mm-hmm. Like, how can you tell a story about a community that you've never even yeah. been to that country? Mm. You, haven't, you, you haven't met those people. And yet, mm. throughout kind of decades now, that has been the process. Mm-hmm. That you're having these briefs created and creators write scripts for places that they genuinely haven't visited, or a booming voiceover over footage found telling a story about a community and these people who they've never met. Mm. And you even know? if they have met them, it's that very unilateral relationship. I'm coming here to extract your story to really through my white Northern Hemisphere power holding gaze. So mm. even when we have met them, it's then sort of about looking at, well, are you meeting them in a way that is relational and reciprocal? Exactly. Because often the communities that we're presenting the story of, they are some of the most resilient, hardworking, tenacious, conscientious people. And yet we seldom, if ever, present them in that way. So definitely agree it's about meeting them, but actually building that relationship with those communities. Except meetings just being the start point. Yeah, exactly. But at least let's start with that. Yeah. And, and let's start earlier, you know. I couldn't agree more. And I think it's what we've been wrestling with, with our different kind of charity partners as well. And I think what recently, interesting to get your point of view on this as well, we've been working with um, WaterAid because you mentioned Wells earlier. Mm-hmm. And started much earlier in the process. Mm. So we went over to Malawi with WaterAid to meet the communities way before the brief came in. To spend 10 days there getting to know communities, not about how water changed your life, but like what makes you tick, what your relationship's like. Having a sense of friendships, people, relationships, and from that getting insights and then developing a broad concept, which we then took back into those communities to have them craft the script. 
to have them write the kind of like, this is the concept, not only do you think it's good, but what should happen in it? And how, what should the details of that be like? Now, we're only two thirds of the way through that. Mm. The third visit is going to be when we, we get to make and, and, and film this story. But it, what's really interesting about it is the co-creation starting way earlier. And one thing that we found, apart from being incredibly rewarding, is how creative and mm. interesting and things that you couldn't think of and write in a, in a London office sat without that broader context. But just to go back to your original point about making it more interesting, it's more interesting for everybody as well as it being more true and authentic and credible. Mm. And hopefully, I'd love to get your opinion when, we, when it comes out in the world, a more interesting product at the end of it that still achieves the what that everybody needs I mean, to do from a charity perspective, but the how has been elevated. And that, I think, is what's really important moving forward. Did you identify any risks to changing the status quo in that way? There is the primary aim of an advertising campaign Mm. is often fundraising. Mm -hmm. Is there a risk of, by changing the narrative slightly, that you are less likely to appeal to your traditional white, middle-class, very set-in-their-ways donor over here? Interestingly, I think there's a bigger risk if you don't. Because I think there might be a couple of the traditional followers who you might lose, but there's a whole group of new people who you might kind of bring into the fold as Mm. well. Mm. And I think it's not about should, it's the fact that it needs to change. And I think the numbers will always push advertising, right? Charities and NGOs, just like any brand on the planet, they need the work that we put out there to work. And I don't think anybody is diminishing how important the what is. But I think what is really interesting, what we're all trying to do is elevate the how we get there part and making sure that if we do that right, the end products will be more interesting. And let me give you an example, a really, really current example. We just got back from Burundi, which is one of the poorest countries in the world, where we shot a commercial there with the community. It was really interesting. We went there for a long period of time to get to know them. And, and it was a real kind of collaborative experience. It was a very different to being on a normal commercial shoot, which has a different energy. It was an incredibly joyous, interesting co-collaboration piece that we did. And as a script, it actually flips off the old norm of a, a booming voiceover telling the world about this community. And the community actually break the third wall and say to the voiceover, actually, you got that wrong. And they take over the narrative. And what's really interesting about that, this was for Tear Fund. And it came out, I think, last week. And within four days, achieved 25% of its goal that was meant to achieve over three months. Mm. That tells you quite a strong indicator that by kind of ripping up the old rule book um, and quite literally the old script, as then that commercial does, actually will be rewarded in the kind of financial factor at the end of it and actually drive, you know, real world donations as well. So actually, I see that as a positive indication that it's not necessarily brave to work in this way. I think we have to work in this way and and achieve better results for the NGOs as well. Shall we just have a listen to this? Yes. Yeah. This is Burundi in Africa. And this is Cecile, who's walking to fetch water for her family. Oh, yeah, Steve. Oh, okay. Well, then what's in the bucket? <clears throat> this is the school that your donations built, brick by... Oh, then who built it? Of course. Your generous donation. Oh, yeah. Ah. This is the centre of the community that your donations... No, look, it's not, is it? Okay, what did Tear Fund do? Uh-huh. 
please. Oh, well, that's much more helpful. So just for the benefit of people who are listening and not looking at this beautiful video, the Burundian characters mm. are contradicting everything that the traditional British voiceover is saying. And no, you didn't build our school. No, you didn't give us that. But what Tier Fund did do is provide training, which helps. And then they say at the end, uh, finally, they're starting to get it. <laughs> so Natalia Nana, what do you think of that? I love that. I love also the fact that it's, you know, embracing comedy, you know, showing more humanity, more varied emotions. So often previously up until even like now, it's still so often the case in many, many charity fundraising adverts, the only emotion that you're allowed to feel for brown cultured, you know, for majority world people is sympathy, is empathy and is a sense of superiority that should cue charitable, you know, either superior or guilt-based giving so I love that this is infused with joy and empowerment and for me very much like embodies what I think charity charity I really don't like that word but what charities like sector should be about that relationship okay they've already got their buildings but we're relating with them we're in community with them and I really just yeah like connect with the points that Rick said about how we respond to the fact of okay you're going to lose people if you don't actually broaden how we do it because so many of us and particularly younger generation are just bored and don't connect at all with the previous original way you know lots of these charities were set up 50 odd years ago and that's the way that charitable fundraising was done and it really time to update the script but for me, it's also not so much as about worrying about, oh, are we going to lose supporters? For me, it's really about, again, coming back to values and the responsibility we have to these communities that we have the duty and privilege of working with and helping to rebuild, you know, their communities that were decimated by things that we have benefited from. So for me, it's about like, actually, I have responsibility to take supporters on a journey with us of actually away from that Victorian egocentric, superior, white, saviorist, philanthropic mm. model. And actually, which is in a way is a gift to them, like to help them capture the dream of rebuilding and an eco like dream of community and equity, both economically and racialized justice. And actually saying, okay, we want to rebuild a future for the world that is based mm. on those values and that is exciting and will both keep your current audiences mm. and embrace new ones. So for me, there's a sense of education of actually, okay, even like confessing to your like current supporters, okay, you know what? We recognize we've been maybe colluding unintentionally a bit with perpetuating narratives that aren't fully true. Mm. It is partly true that many, many people in Africa are unfairly starving and unfairly suffering and there's a fuller, bigger, more beautiful truth that we now have a duty of care and have a wonderful opportunity to tell about like the beauty and excitement and joy. And fundamentally, what you said as well is there's more truth to that. Yes. And I think that's, that's the element. Yeah. When we kind of got to the community in Burundi, they welcomed us with this ceremony and there's mm. singing and there's dancing. It was and the, just the joy mm. and the culture and how it makes you feel is incredible. It's like we have to find a way to kind of share that Mm. Yeah. With, with the British yeah. public because for so long we have been told this one type of emotion the sad music the slow violin the black and white imagery do you know what I mean and actually mm. the colour and the excitement and the joy within the culture is so important it's more interesting and it's more truthful absolutely 
And it's great, Rick, you talk about this experience of being immersed in the culture mm. and speaking to the people about what makes them tick and getting to know them. And Natalia Nana, you talked about this process of zooming out, which I'm assuming requires a certain degree of unlearning as well mm -hmm. from the charity's side, a process that might be quite lengthy and resource intensive as well. At a time where now charities are working with increasingly shrinking budgets, and I wonder what you would say to people who might feel like this is not a pressing priority in terms of where the money goes at the moment. Mm. That is a brilliant question. It's a brilliant question, but I think those shrinking budgets are just going to keep on shrinking if yeah. we keep doing things the same way. Rick for the win. What do you think? Is that all right? <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, sorry, that like sounds me clicking like, yeah, baby, carry on. Yeah, really good point. Yeah. And, and I, because I think, you know, like you said about younger generations too, who are turned off to that. And I think that mm. if charities keep going down that way and they have helped perpetuate mm. that as well. And yeah. I think the, the whole sector has helped perpetuate that sort of look. But, and it does take more investment. It does take more time to take more energy and it does effectively take more money to work in this way. For example, like the water aid example that we're doing with them. But ultimately, not only is it the right thing to do in a more value-driven way to do, I think ultimately it's what will help charities' profits increase yeah. where they will get more fundraising for and help more people off the back of it because I don't think that they can be successful in the future if we keep going down the road where we bring in this sort of kind of white saviorist point of view to yeah. it and not working in a genuine co-creation. And one thing that bugs me is co-creation is so easily used and doesn't mm -hmm. really mean co-creation. Misused. Exactly. Misuse is better. It, where where co-creation is, oh, we had a conversation about the yeah. script with somebody like, and therefore co That's not co-creation. <laughs> we talk a lot about meaningful co-creation. Mm. And that means actually working with people very early on, mm. actually letting go and actually welcoming other voices and, and actually yeah. being uncomfortable. You know, I think as a, from a, in a creative process, you need to feel a little bit uncomfortable yeah. because if you're feeling like very comfortable about something, you're probably not doing something that's interesting enough to actually make a difference in the real world. And I think you've got to let the reins off a little bit and feel a bit mm. uncomfortable and work with different brains and work with different points of view mm. and have the confidence in your own abilities to do that. Because I think if you do, you will end up in a place that feels genuinely like something we haven't seen before, something we a story we haven't been told before, and a story told from a perspective we haven't seen before. And that can only be interesting for the charity, but also the, an audience that's going to see that. And hopefully those kind of shrinking budgets will start going the other way, mm. as well as at the same time as moving into a more value-driven space within the sector. Yeah, I absolutely love and agree with all of that. Yeah, I just I, I love that because it's also like you're making both a value case and a business case for it, which is the sweet spot. Mm. You know, the sweet spot in the middle of like, okay, where did this work economically and also value sort of purposefully? And I think also there's something of, I guess, like having the long game, like so much of the charity sector, unfortunately, you know, began with this value element, but has been co-opted by capitalism and this sense of, okay, well, you know, everything is measured only in economic metrics. And I'm not saying economic metrics don't matter. Hello, I like a salary. But it should not ever be the only metric by which we measure mm. success. And that's really, really distorted 
things and it leads to this sort of very short term you know, short-term decision-making. And we're talking about redeveloping a world that was decimated from behaviors and actions that happened 500 plus years mm. ago. We need to have a long-term view of this. So yeah, EDI, equity, diversity, inclusion work, you know, which does sort of thread through all of this is an investment, but that's not to say that it's because you don't see the short-term goal, therefore it's not a long-term benefit. It's sort of, you know, if I was going to build a house, there's a wonderful parable of, you know, the wise and foolish builder. And, you know, the Egypt builder just, you know, builds it on the sand. And the other builder was like, oh God, okay, this is going to be such a long thing, but all right, I'm going to like build the foundations and graphs and takes months and years and builds it. And then, you know, years later when there's a tsunami or a flood, the first building just sinks into the sand. It doesn't have a strong foundation. So there's something about actually saying, okay, yes, we're celebrating our 50th birthday, 75th birthday, 100th birthday, whatever these charities doing is their milestones. But thinking, okay, if you want to be here for another 100 years, what are the foundations that are necessary to take you there? And also there is something about, if something is right to do, if something is true and good and right, it is right whether times are economically challenging or whether they're not. Mm. If it's just the right thing to do, do it and don't use economics as an excuse. Yeah. it's really interesting seeing how in the wake of 2020 with the murder of Mr. Floyd and so many charities suddenly waking up from their self-imposed privileged slumber to the ongoing decimation of racism, but seeing so many, so many advertising organizations wake up to the black pound and wake up to the value of actually reaching underreached audiences and seeing how now we're seeing so many more people of color in advertising, seeing people with different body sizes, seeing people who are disabled or have disabilities, however they identify in advertising. And it hasn't actually led to these companies losing revenue. It's led to these companies, like Rick was saying, mm. reaching new audiences. Mm. And often in advertising, charity sector is way behind, but follows the commercial sector. So I think, okay, well, if those sectors are realizing, again, in the wake of COVID and the shrinking of the global economy, if they're seeing, okay, actually, we can expand and diversify, and that actually leads to greater inclusion and representation, actually leads to greater engagement, then I really think that that's hopeful for the charity sector in all of its guises to do likewise and actually mm. gain more supporters, gain more followers. And the more diversity you have, biodiversity shows us this, then the longer, actually, that things are sustained. Yeah. And what are your views on any differences between disaster response campaigns and then longer term development systemic change and campaigns that are trying to raise money or awareness for those? Mm. Oh, that's a really, really good question. Because I think that sort of brings into like the center, that sense of the urgent imperative, you know, sort of the urgent important box right now is getting these people safe or helping these people access safety and helping these people access these basic resources. And I think it can be so easy and so lazy to just dislocate that from any context. Mm. Whereas I think if actually, if your charitable approach is grounded in equity and respect for black and brown bodies and equalizing and redistribution of power in particular, then that will actually feed through into how you're actually working in an operational level in a humanitarian context, in particular of actually seeing, well, going out, obviously in your disaster response and engaging with communities. If you already have that pre-existing relationship mm. and you've got your disaster response lead in that community identified, then you can more quickly 
identify what do they actually need and actually portray that in your advertising of, okay, like, you know, Patrice has said that they need this in their community and actually use Patrice's voice mm. rather than we white NGO saviors with our backpacks ready to fly out to, you know, Burundi tomorrow. We are here off to, and we have decried, we have declared what they need. So I think, again, if it's rooted in relationship and in respect, then there's something about actually the modality of advertising doesn't need to be so different. Because if you're taking your supporters on that wider journey, then how you present people in disaster won't be so disparate from how it is. So I found it really interesting, but also really quite unsettling seeing posters for Ukrainian fundraising. I just thought, well, how interesting. Now, it's actually a um, my racialized white housemate who also works in the INGO sector. And she was the one who came out of a lavatory store where there was a poster for Ukrainian refugee, um, Ukrainian fundraising. And she said, that was such a respectful poster. I haven't seen one like that with black children on it. Mm. Like, okay, it was a really dignified, empowered, you know, picture of a mother and child. But, it, you know, there were no flies. There was no, like, you know, decimated community, even though very much likely that that community has been physically and emotionally and socially decimated. But they weren't shown in that context. They were shown as having their dignity and their clothes on. Because funnily enough, Africa has clothes, people. Like, just this sense of, okay, that thread of respect was woven into a picture, but it didn't in any way take away from the urgency mm. and the heart the heart wooing of that picture. That's an incredibly good point, isn't it? And it's about how overt we need to be with the need versus inherent. Like if you're you're seeing that post for Ukraine, it's like the need is inherent, whereas you are right that that too often the need is the focus of the image or do you know what I mean? In terms mm. of and, and and we've had a lot of conversations around that too, in terms of kind of that by showcasing the, the respectful Mm. beautiful way of, of kind of embracing kind of culture like allows you to kind of be less on the nose in terms of that depiction. I am wondering Rick if you have any tips on how charities can work to avoid context flattening and specifically when it comes to adjustments that they can make to the creative production process to improve representation and still achieve fundraising goals what can they, how is a positive creative process? What does that look like? I think it's about broadening the room from the very beginning. Mm. And that, is, that means bringing different minds to the table in multiple different ways, not just one. For example, we work with creatives that don't, you know, don't live and work in London, live around the world, in Africa, in, in lots of different places. And it's interesting, their start point for ideas is different. Because their insights is different, their, their lived experience is different. And I think at every stage, you need to broaden the minds because it's very, very simple mass. The more different the inputs, the yeah. more different the outputs going to be. Mm. I think that starts all the way back at the insight level. I think it starts where the, the very nucleus of where an idea comes from. I think it goes all the way through to the scripting section itself. And you know what? It does not stop when you get to the script. I think how you make something is just as important as what you make. And I think it's really important to bring as many different people into the making process as you can. And actually, we've obviously, for good reason, been focusing a lot on kind of the global south. But a, a, an example is also like, is Ukraine something that just happened? We did a, a film for the DC recently to mark a year since the conflict began in Ukraine. Yeah. And actually, to draw attention to the UK public actually raised 
400 million for Ukraine, and which, which is a huge amount of money. And we're very, very aware of not being tone deaf. We made a film to say that because you know what? The conflict's still going on. It could get worse for a lot more people before it gets better. So we had to make sure we get the tone right. So we shot the entire thing in Ukraine with a full Ukrainian cast, a few Ukrainian crew, everybody from the runners of DOP, everybody's Ukrainian, and we remote shot from there. And there's a couple of interesting points. One, all the the cast in the film were actors, but they're also Ukrainians with lived experience. So you've got that amazing ability where they, they have the acting ability to tell the story, but also that lived experience. And we're talking about one actor was a four-year-old boy sat in a bunker acting and telling his line. I'm very, very aware that that kid spent the last year of his life in a bunker. Often the emotions will be fear and other things as well. Mm. And the overarching thing we found was how important it was to everybody in front or behind the camera to be involved and tell their story and showcase the world. This is what Ukraine looks like now, a year on. The emotional importance for them to make the film, almost an element of Catholicism about it, a little bit cathartic to be able to do it, but very important for people to be able to use their talent, whether they're an actor or a filmmaker or whatever it may be, to be able to tell their story. And I think we found that in Burundi and we found that in Ukraine. And that's what I mean about broadening the room from the very beginning all the way to the end. Because the more different brains you put around a production and actually making mm. something, then the more interesting it's going to be. And, and we're not talking about kind of people saying co-creation because they kind of like it's just a little bit here. We're talking about the very fabric of every single point from mm. the inside all the way up to the production, having different brains around it. And it will make everybody involved in it better. Because our brains are sponges too. I'm sort of beaming at that because, again, it sort of reminds me of what you made earlier about inclusion and that sort of diversifying the voices in the room because that then links to my work, which excites me about equity, diversity, and inclusion. And I used to do EDI for Tear Fund, ironically. So it's great seeing that advert all these years later. And actually, okay, like it's really hard to get to that position that Rick's just said if you don't have diversity. And I mean, true diversity with a capital D, not just, oh, cool, we've hired a black girl, but actually like diversity of culture, diversity of experience, diversity of ethnicity, diversity of sexuality and identity. Not just because, oh, it looks different. It's not about the external. It's about recognising that people with different identities and different makeups have got different experiences that's a different lens with which they're seeing what to you might look plainly obvious and to them might have a pink or a blue or a green tint to it so they're bringing that different nuance but if you don't actually have that diversity in your organization in that communications team in the first place or if you have a person of colour, but they're from the same area, the same sort of cultural view and milieu and political persuasion of you, same age group. Okay, you might have a little bit of extra creativity and thinking, but it's not true diversity. And the challenge is, like when you say, oh, I don't know why you wouldn't, I'm thinking, I know bloody loads of reasons why people wouldn't. It's mm. to raise what you said earlier, the word uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. It's working with people who are different to me makes me question my grip on the world and if my version of truth and reality is the right one. But again, I think we can take people, our teams, our organizations, our board, our trustees, and especially our supporters and those we haven't reached out on that journey of actually seeing that more hues, more colors, more opinions, just make things more bright and more interesting. And that can be uncomfortable, but uncomfortable doesn't need to be unsafe. Mm. Natalia Nana Lester-Bush and Rick Dodds, thank you both very much for joining us. Thank you. Pleasure. This has been a blast. Absolutely. 
We hope you enjoyed that discussion with Natalia, Nana and Rick. So much energy in the studio. Yeah, it was great. (laughs) One of the interesting things for me was particularly what Rick was saying. It, It was all quite obvious in terms of involving the communities from the word go, asking them to tell their stories, um, making sure that you're fully immersing yourself in the context. And it made me ask, you know, why, why has that not been done before? But then as Natalia Nana pointed out, it's very uncomfortable often to change the way that you work, to change your outlook and way of working when it comes to talking about your service users and so on, but such an important conversation to be had. And Hopefully, well, as Rick was saying, the Tear Fund campaign, they had such a fantastic response and generated 25% of their target within the space of a couple of days. So clearly, the public reception was very positive. Yeah. And to come back to your point of why hasn't it been done already or why don't more charities do it, I think there is definitely a point of resistance when it comes to being uncomfortable but it also requires a lot of internal buy-in so you have to make a case that this is a good use of resources but it can be done successfully and they have given uh, brilliant examples of it and there's another example that came to mind from a piece that I wrote last year on the charity Praxis which is a charity that works with migrants and refugees in the UK And I had a great conversation with their chief executive, Sally Daglian, and she was telling me about a campaign which the charity co-produced with members of the community it serves in 2020, precisely for the reasons that we talked about. They wanted to challenge the condition of people with no recourse to public funds in the UK, but they wanted to do it with messaging that came from the people themselves rather than the charity acting as a spokesperson. And the campaign did lead to guaranteed free school meals for the children of people with no recourse to public funds, which was a great result. So this is a great example of a charity being mindful of the way it platforms its community and empowers people to shape public discourse around Mm -hmm. the issues that they face rather than being perceived as victims. Yeah, it's so important. And I think that also emphasizes the point that it's not always about fundraising obviously when it comes to charities communicating what they're doing or wanting to influence or change public perception often it is raising awareness whether it be for a disability whether it be for the situation of a refugee community in this country or even you know other communities abroad for sure that's it for this week Next week, we'll be speaking to the Charities Aid Foundation about gift aid. So if you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear the next one, please do subscribe to the Third Sector podcast to be the first to know about it. But for now, thank you Natalia Nana Lester-Bush and Rick Dodds, and of course, our producer, Nav Powell.